welcome to episode 2029 of Effectively Wild, a Fangraphs baseball podcast brought to you by our Patreon supporters. I'm Meg Rowley of Fangraphs, and I'm joined as always by Ben Lindbergh of The Ringer. Ben, how are you? Doing all right. Just quietly celebrating Shohei Otani's birthday, episode mm. 2029, and it's uh, happy 29 for Shohei. I hope how it's a happy that? 29, although things mm. aren't going so great for the Angels mm. right now, or really mm. for either of the LA area teams, yeah. so... Perhaps the birthday could be better because the day before his birthday didn't go so great. He didn't pitch particularly well, probably partly because of a blister that caused him to leave the game. Hopefully that won't be a lingering issue. But it was a bad day for the Angels because not only did they lose that game and have Otani's blister, but Anthony Rendon fouled a ball off of himself May or may not go on the IL, hasn't yet as we speak, but it's Anthony Rendon, so I'm going to guess that he will. (laughs) Yeah, And worst of all, Mike Trout is hurt. Mike Trout has hurt his handmate. (sighs) Yeah, it's a bad one, Ben. Like, Mm -hmm. it's a bad one in the immediate term. And I think that um, if we were ranking the injuries that one can sustain and still theoretically return same season and... Do I have a ready-made list of all of those injuries? I mean, no, I don't. I don't. You know how many weird little bird bones you got in your body, Ben? You got so Shit. many, and also all of mm-hmm. these tendons, yeah, and you know, like veins it could yep. probably hurt one of those, and nerves. You know, we know that the nerves can get messed yeah. up, and Anything all your can go spraying at any moment, right? All your fleshy bits. But if I were gonna pick one that's particularly bad for a hitter, I mean, like there's the time he will miss recovering the broken hamate, and that's bad enough. But it's one of those injuries that really seems to sap guys, particularly of their power, for a while after they've been able to return to game action and swing again. So it's, you know, in a a season where we have seen what to us, because of the lofty standards he has set, is like a diminished version of Trout, he's now sustained an injury that if it doesn't torpedo the the odds of the Angels making the postseason at all, you know, just on its own, when he does return, like, the version of him that we're likely to get is probably not going to be a step forward from the performance we've already seen. So it's really just, it's just a shame all around. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm bummed. I'm bummed, yeah. Ben. Me too. So they say return to play is four to eight weeks. It's really closer to the upper end of that range usually. There are some guys who come back quick, but Trout is not known for healing (laughs) extremely quickly. And also, I think most players, it's more like six to eight weeks. So hopefully he'll be back at some point in that time frame and will not be too diminished by it. I did peruse some of the medical literature pertaining to hamates, and there is some evidence that uh, even after players returned, there's maybe a, a modest decline in performance. It, it really varies, though, and sure. the studies that I've seen incorporated minor leaguers, and it wasn't super conclusive, but I'll link to some of those things if you're interested in looking yourself. But yes, that is at least the, the reputation. That's what people say when people have hamate issues. It's such a strange little injury because it's this little part of you that you don't really need, I guess, or it doesn't really do all that much, except that when it 
breaks, it hurts. And it can just break on a foul ball, on a pretty routine swing. It's just like you jab the knob of your bat in the wrong place, like at the base of your wrist or your palm, I suppose. And then that little bird bone breaks and it can be quite painful. And then you have to either wait for it to heal or have surgery. And it sucks. And it's uh, it's also it's strange because how many thousands upon thousands of swings has Mike Trout taken? And that didn't happen before, right? So it's just either the bone was just a little bit more vulnerable than it used to be, or there was just something about the contours of that swing and the angles and the pressures applied that uh, caused that to be the straw that broke Mike Trout's left hand hate bone. So that is bad. And the Angels' playoff odds now are, are down just under 20%. And because they've been bad lately, they've lost 10 out of 14. And because Trout is now gone for maybe up to a couple months, people are starting to say, well, could this mean that Shohei Otani will get traded, right? And I'm still here to say, no, almost certainly not. Like the Angels are really banged up right now. Yeah. They they have 14 players on the injured list, which as we speak, is tied with the Dodgers, who we'll talk about in a second, and I think also the Red Sox, who are going through it right now, too. And hey, I mean, they called up Joe Adele, AAA slugger, 23 dingers down there. So maybe maybe he'll just be great this time. But they just have so many guys hurt and some out for the season, like Gio Urshela, and then short-term Zach Neto and Brandon Drury and Max Stassi and Logan O'Hoppy have been out forever and Ben Joyce is hurt and Matt Moore is hurt and it just goes on and on. And so you might think, well, could they cut bait? It looks like they're falling out of it. Granted, they're not that far. They're, what, four games out of the wildcard race, I think, as we speak on Wednesday. But it's trending downward, and it becomes increasingly difficult to envision the Angels actually making the playoffs this season. Not out of the realm of possibility, but they have not inspired confidence for the past several years where you'd feel like the Angels will find a way. They'll figure it out. <laughs> yeah, they always do. <laughs> you know those perpetual contenders, the Los Angeles Angels? Yeah, but— he's still just not going to get traded. Like, it's made the speculation more reasonable. In theory, there's more of a case for doing it, but he's just a singular guy where I think the normal arguments don't apply here. I mean, do you think there's any chance whatsoever that he gets traded? I mean, I think that there's there is any chance, you know, mm -hmm. of of all of the continuum of chances. This is sure. a non-zero <laughs> one, right? Yes. Mm -hmm. I think that there's that possibility. I think that the dominoes that have to fall for it to actually come to fruition don't strike me as, as likely to fall, right? Because if you're the Angels, not only their front office, but the ownership group, and you're like, okay, we're down Mike Trout, and we might be looking at yet another year in which we don't see playoff baseball or play playoff baseball. We might see it, but from home, right? Mm -hmm. Then what? what is the draw in the back half of the season for fans to come to the ballpark and spend money? And it's it's going to yeah. be Otani, right? Yep. And so to counterbalance that, that value, setting aside the actual obvious value he brings to the team on the field, you would need to have, I imagine, like a pretty phenomenal offer. And, you know, we've seen 
we've seen big prospect packages move for rentals. Like it's not unprecedented, but I, I'm more than a little bit skeptical that it would return something that would inspire Artie Moreno to say, yeah, okay, trade him, right? Mm-hmm. Because, you know, the closest comp in terms of combined value is probably, it's probably what LA sent to the Nationals for Scherzer and Trey Turner, right? Mm-hmm. But even that's an imperfect comp because, you know, you had longer with Turner on the back end. And now maybe you say, wow, <laughs> I was worried I was going to sound like Christopher Christopher Walken there for a second. Wow. Um, <laughs> I'm very tired, Ben. So, um, you know, maybe you say Otani is so singular. And if you're one of these teams that is trying to separate itself from a crowded playoff field, like what better way to do that with Ot- than with Otani? But I imagine that they will not get the kinds of offers that they need to say, fine, we're, we're pulling the trigger. Because as soon as you do it, you say to your fans, we're done. We're closing up shop for the year. Like, we're not going to, mm-hmm. we know we're not going to compete, which might be true anyway, but it feels worse to say it. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, if one of your stated goals is to try to retain Otani, what does trading him do to that picture and that conversation? Now, we can, we can, perhaps speculate as to the true degree of sincerity <laughs> that mm-hmm. that the organization has when it comes to that. But I don't know, maybe maybe you say to Otani, hey, we're we're going nowhere fast. We have this opportunity to restock the farm system. We really do have interest in trying to bring you back and make you a forever angel. But why don't you go have an opportunity to try to win a ring with insert team X. Um, mm-hmm. and then we'll, you know, we'll talk when November rolls around. But if you do that, first of all, he might not take that kindly. I don't know what his perception of that would be. Obviously the, the total of the deal that they offer him is probably going to be the thing that ends up mattering more than anything, but there is this perception. And I don't know if we really have enough data points to say that it's a trend, but there is this perception that when you trade for these marquee guys who are going to then hit free agency that off season, that you have like this shot to like extend Mm -hmm. them and, and not let them hit the market at all. And, um, and so you lose that opportunity if you're the angels to keep the conversation going about a potential, um, new deal. So that's a lot of words to say. I don't think they'll trade him. It would be very surprising. It it sure would be. I mean, in some ways, it would be nice for us because, you know, then you could come read about it at Fangrass.com. Sure. what might otherwise be a a quiet deadline, but I doubt it. We might finally have a reason to talk about Shohei Otani on this podcast. Right, yeah. I've been looking for some some reason to bring him up, but (laughs) I think it won't happen for any number of reasons. Also, we just talked last time about how it seems like there's a dwindling return for rentals at the deadline. Now, if anyone's an exception to that, it would be Shohei Otani. You're still going to get a good prospect back for Shohei Otani, but it still might not be quite the haul that it would have been in the past. And then also, I mean, my interest is in Shohei Otani and in seeing as much of Shohei Otani as I can. And so I would like him to be traded just because I would want to watch him in October and see what he could do in the playoffs. That would be fun. But if you're the Angels, you've got a lot of revenue riding on that. Of course, if people come out to buy tickets to see Shohei Otani as he's going down the stretch in a presumptive MVP campaign. 
And you might have sponsorship complications there. I mean, there's so many Japanese sponsors that you see on Angel's broadcast and in the ballpark. I wonder, do they have an out clause? Like if Otani is no longer on the Angels, can we just uh, switch our affiliation over to another team? Or is there additional pressure there? You're losing potential revenue, all those eyeballs in Japan who are tuning in to watch Shohei Otani on the Angels. Plus, yeah, you want to win the World Series, you want to make the playoffs, but you are delivering real value, entertainment value to your fans when they get to watch Shohei Otani during one of the most impressive seasons ever. Side note, I wonder if Otani could win the AL MVP award if he were traded to an NL team at the end of July. Could he be the leader in the clubhouse by enough to win after spending the final two months in the NL? Seems like almost the only way he could not win at this point. Anyway, what I'm saying is it's pretty special if this guy having this season is playing for your team. So even if you could, in theory, enhance your team's chances of winning without him in the future, if you were to trade him, you would miss out on the joy of two months of Otani suiting up for your team. That's tough to quantify, but it's real. And yeah, you're losing whatever chance you have of keeping him. I don't think Artie Moreno really wants to be the guy who traded Otani. Now, he's also the guy who brought Otani there. But still, I think he probably doesn't want to be seen as someone who sent Otani away as opposed to if the Angels can make some kind of credible offer and he ends up going elsewhere. Well, that's fine. He It was his choice, right? But, but if they deal him and they lose the opportunity to spend those few months wooing him or have that kind of exclusive negotiating period with him, then fans might hold them responsible for that. However unlikely it may be that he actually decides to stay with the Angels, it does seem like their best shot is that it's the only team he's ever played for in MLB. He is, uh, he's put down roots there. He's comfortable there. They're the team that let him do his two-way thing despite the injuries and everything. They let him do what he wanted to do, and it worked out spectacularly well. And maybe there's some feeling of gratitude or at least comfort or at least knowledge that they're not going to try to force me to do anything that I'm not going to do or they don't want to hold me back in any way. Now, I think the Angels uh, were compelled to say, sure, do whatever you want, because Otani could go anywhere when he came over here. And that was why he got to do a two-way thing in Japan, too. It's like he had leverage because he wanted to go straight to MLB. He said, don't draft me. And then when Nippon Ham drafted him, he had all the leverage and could kind of compel them to let him try something no one else was trying. So if he's a free agent, I think he will still have that leverage this winter. So the fact that the Angels have a track record of letting him be a two-way player, it's not like they're the only ones, right? If he's coming off an MVP campaign, he can go somewhere and he can extract whatever promises that he wants and teams will give it to him, right? And basically anywhere else he goes, he'd have a better shot of winning a World Series, which is something that I do believe he sincerely wants to do. So I don't know what their chances are of keeping him, probably not that great, but their best case for keeping him is, hey, you've only been here. This is where you're comfortable, so stay with us. And if he goes somewhere else down the stretch and he gets to play with a contender and he gets to go to the playoffs, well, is he really going to want to go back to his ex at that point, you know, having been with a new team and, and been in a happy relationship with them? I kind of doubt it. So there'd just be too much fallout, too much blowback. 
I don't know that you can get fair value for someone who's just uh, priceless and incomparable like that. So yeah, I don't think he's going to go anywhere. <laughs> but I don't think so but it does make the kind of like cold, hard, abstract, just statistically based argument, hey, you're only going to get a draft pick if you hold on to him kind of argument, a little more persuasive, but not persuasive enough. So that's that takes us to the other LA team, which obviously is in a, a better position playoff odds wise, but is really shorthanded now and literally shorthanded because the only arm of theirs from the opening day rotation who's been healthy all this season, surprisingly, Clayton Kershaw, he has now gone on the IL with a shoulder issue. And yeah, everyone says he has his annual trip to the IL, right? Keep him fresh. Often it's a back thing, a shoulder thing, kind of concerning, but even more concerning is the fact that Dustin May is done for the year already. Dustin, we hardly knew you, right? Like he came back, looked great after the Tommy John surgery, then got hurt with the dreaded flexor tendon issue. And now he's having surgery to have that repaired and just a revision of the Tommy John surgery, which just has to suck. So he's going to be out at least until midseason next year. So they were really hoping he could come back this season and give them some reinforcement because they have basically an entire rotation on the IL now. <laughs> Syndergaard, all of his issues, May, Ryan Pepio, Walker Bueller still trying to come back, Kershaw hurt now. And then other players have uh, not been as good as they've been in previous seasons, right? Gonsolin and, and Urias. So they already have three rookies in the rotation, Michael Grove, Emmett Sheehan, and Bobby Miller. And that's already asking a lot. And now they're down a, a big arm. So major, major injury issues in the LA area these days. Yeah, and it's so interesting because it's like the, you know, Ben other Ben wrote about this for us today. And, you know, I think that we all, even knowing that they were going to be without Walker Bueller for the majority of the season, like our, our collective concern when it came to the Dodgers this off season was like, what's this offense going to look like? Right. They didn't really do a whole lot in terms of, you know, free agency. They made some trades. They brought in some guys that felt more like complementary pieces than primary ones. They lost Lux early. You know, they obviously lost guys in free agency. And we were all kind of like, what's this going to look like? Are they going to hit enough to like be a thing? And thank goodness they have, you know, all of this rotation depth, even if they do have some older guys at the top. And like the offense has been fine. It hasn't been world beating, but it's been it's been fine. And you're still getting really good production out of Betts and out of Freddie Freeman. And Muncie is often hurt, but sometimes we'll hit a home run. So it's like, you know, the the offense has been fine, but now they're sitting there going, like, what are you gonna do with all like I think they can weather this level of injury, but if they have one more guy go down, it's going to be a real problem. I mean, I imagine they will be among the more motivated buyers at the deadline when it comes to trying to do some sort of starting pitching reinforcement, even if they're just like vault running together, you know, a couple of lower sort of profile dudes, because again, I don't know what team is dealing like big name starters. So, you know, that's, they find themselves like with a need that everyone is going to have because everyone at this point in the season has m some important part of their rotation on the injured list. And, you know, they do have, I, I think that when we're, we're contemplating the teams that might be able to say, 
if they want to throw in an extra good prospect to kind of put their their offer over the line relative to others, LA is, excuse me, the Dodgers, not the Angels, are well positioned to do that. Their system is incredibly deep and they do have some redundancy. But yeah, it's not, it's not ideal. And you know, you have to have a fully healthy rotation and a bang up offense to take down the mighty, mighty Diamondbacks. Like that, mm-hmm. that's just understood, right? That's canon. That's Major League mm-hmm. Baseball canon, Ben. Yeah, the Angels and Dodgers, they are 10th and 16th in starting pitcher war. That's not what you want. No, and 10th and 11th in overall bullpen, no, overall pitching staff war. The bullpen has been an issue for the Dodgers as well, to put things uh, lightly. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not looking great over there. And the Red Sox, I mentioned, also have a ton of guys on the IL, although, <laughs> funnily enough, one of them is not. James Paxton. James Paxton is is just bailing this team out (laughs) these days. Big game James. Yeah. We love to see it. He's back. We love it. I know. I do love to see it, and we so rarely see it. It's been so long since we've seen it. I was on a Red Sox podcast some months ago, and they asked me about James Paxton coming back, and I was like, look, we've all had our fling with James Paxton. (laughs) Like, we all... Had our time when we were infatuated with him, but he just always let us down. He always was fragile. And so far this season, 50 innings exactly for him. Now, if I set the minimum at 50 innings exactly, 139 pitchers who've gotten there this season. And he is fourth in strikeout minus walk rate. It's Spencer Strider, Kevin Gossman, Matt Strom, and then James Paxton. Yep. So I love to see it. I hope we continue to see it. It's kind of a theme with him that as soon as we start seeing it, we then stop seeing it because he breaks. But <laughs> right, he's like a very he's like a very special particle that behaves differently when he's observed. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. So we haven't brought him up on the podcast. It's like don't talk about it. Don't no talk about like, it. Yeah. Like don't don't look at. <laughs> it too closely don't look at it for too long just like see it's there and then turn your head and notice something else <laughs> yeah yeah okay well we'll just move on before anything bad happens <laughs> just wanted to acknowledge it while it yeah. was happening before it was too late and you know who's fifth on the strikeout minus walk rate leaderboard joe ryan of mm, the twins yeah. and i was thinking of joe ryan because nelson cruz got designated for assignment by the Padres, which may or may not bring an end to his long and accomplished career. Perhaps he'll land somewhere else, but it it could be it. Could be it for him. So it's definitely it for my preseason bold prediction that the Padres DH tandem of Matt Carpenter and Nelson Cruz would lead the National League in DH war. I don't think that's happening. I was uh, hoping that there'd be one last hurrah for those guys, but it turns out uh, maybe maybe not so much. Maybe they were kind of cooked. But Nelson Cruz, I mean, we've talked about uh, many, many times over the years. Obviously, they decided that whatever clubhouse value he brings and Juan Soto's fondness for him and everything, it's a crowded roster, as we have noted many times. And we were somewhat confused about how they were fitting in these DHs in the first place. So I guess the Padres do have roster restrictions, it turns out. And it also turns out that age is undefeated and that 
Cruz getting eye surgery or LASIK or whatever it was and saying that he hadn't been able to see the ball as well and that he was going to get that corrected. And I thought, oh, maybe, it really, it could impair his performance if he couldn't see the ball so well. And now if he could see the ball, maybe. I'm always disappointed, though, with the, the LASIK. And I've seen studies, I think, to this effect that it, it doesn't really seem to have, if you just look at all players who have LASIK and you look before and after, it isn't all that obvious, <laughs> but uh, that it actually did anything. So that did not uh, enable him to turn back the clock, unfortunately. So maybe that's it. He just turned 43 a few days ago, actually, on July 1st. So I guess uh, retroactively not that happy a birthday either. But that just made me think because he was traded for Joe Ryan, right? That was the the link there. So we talk all the time about the Rays and their miraculous trades, right? Yeah, but, they probably want that one back. <laughs> yeah, that is one that uh, July 2021, just exactly two years ago, a little less, they traded for Calvin Fauché and Nelson Cruz for Drew Stotman, a minor leaguer, and Joe Ryan. And look, I mean, credit to the Rays for going for it. They needed some offensive help. They had a good team that year. Nelson Cruz didn't give them as much offensive help as they would have liked. He hit some dingers, but overall, not that great. It did give them the Fauché-Poche combo mm. in the bullpen, and maybe that so makes it, was it all worth, worth it. it. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> To me, it was. I don't care where Joe Ryan is good. He could be good at either place. I like the Fauché Poche, but probably not worth it to the Rays. And and Ryan was like pretty much major league ready at that point. I mean, he he came up with the Twins later that season and, and had some success. And he was, I guess, kind of underrated as a – like he was not – a top 100 guy that year. He had been one prior to 2020, and then he was again one prior to 2022. So that was like a little valley, a little lull in his prospect rankings. But but even the year before and after, he was like barely cracking the top 100, right? Because, you know, he's like a deception guy, partly. And I love deception guys and guys whose stuff plays up. And that's yeah, who he's been. You just love liars you're famous for. <laughs> yeah. Love and I don't know if the Rays underrated him. I mean, I, I think they probably knew he was pretty good. They were just, they had to give up something to get something. And it has uh, worked out quite well for the Twins. Yeah, it, it really has. And it's funny, you know, it's like your most pressing needs can be so temporary, right? And it's like, what would they, e- even for a, a less good version of Joe Ryan, like what would they give up right now, you know, mm-hmm. when they really need like right. starting pitcher reinforcements. Yeah. So <laughs> exactly, yeah, I think yeah. they want that one back. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, throw that into the the deadline rental trades bucket too. I, technically, not not a hundred top one hundred prospect coming back because he wasn't that year. Although he should have been. <laughs> so, but it's been a lot of injuries. We were just celebrating recently how there hadn't know, been that many. It. I know. I guess we did it's because fault, all, all these ones we've been talking about. Tyro Estrada who is uh, leading the Giants in war this season. He got hit by a pitch, fractured his hand too. It's it's all these bird bones. It's a, really a problem. Like you need hands, you need yes. wrists, but yes. they're they're just so breakable. They're 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 stupid, you know. They are <laughs> um they're stupid little bird bones and mm-hmm. I hate them, you know. Yeah. I feel comfortable saying that. Like it's mm-hmm. uh 
<sighs> you know, I won't even call it a design flaw because that's like that's something I don't believe. But like it's um, you know, it it's it feels like a thing we should have been able to overcome by now, you know. Mm -hmm. In some it ways <laughs> I'm good. I'm about to say such an unhinged start to a sentence, but you know, in some ways it's really a mistake that we went to the moon because <laughs> <laughs> Having yeah. set the precedent for that level of um, human accomplishment, you know, right. in the face of so many tiny problems that probably seemed at various moments insurmountable to the engineers that eventually were able to overcome them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, my expectations for what we should be able to do are are just way too high. And, you yeah. know, do I understand that sending a rocket to the moon and, um, you know, moving past all the tiny bird bones are like separate <laughs> projects? I mean, yeah, I do understand that. I'm not a dummy. Mm -hmm. But I uh, I still sit here and I'm like, really, this we are undone by? But we we went up there and... And came back, you know, like they didn't just get stuck up there and we go, oh, I guess that's that's too bad. You know, that didn't happen. They came back mm -hmm. a yep. couple of, a couple of times, Ben, you know. Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. So yeah. it's Quite just like it's uh, it's they're both engineering issues and we solved one in a, and, and in a not sense, the other. Yeah. You know, in a in a <laughs> particular kind of way. I, I mm -hmm. think that that's true. But, yeah, I just I want <sighs> these guys to stay healthy. I want to see, you know, and blisters. Like, what's up with that? We can't figure out freaking blisters. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, Rich Hill figured out his blister issues, seemingly. He hasn't been plagued by them in years. And Is he peeing on his hands on. again? No, he was not peeing on his. I believe he told us he, he was using some sort of laser treatment. Oh. And it, it appears to. So that's appropriately so he's a futuristic. Is, what, is, where he's, is where he's landed. I love that for but, him. But yeah, you're not wrong. We really did set ourselves up for failure yeah. and disappointment with the whole, like, you could put a man on the moon, but we can't do X. So, right. yeah. And now now we're we're figuring out the, the putting people on the moon issue all over again. It, it's still challenging, even though we, right. we did it long ago with right. uh, spacecraft computers that uh, could fit in, you know, like the nub of a pencil at this point, right? right. But still, it's uh, hard to, to do that, but we did it, you know, and now we got to tackle the bird bones next. Yeah, we got we got bird bones. We got all your weird tendons that somehow snap and break and are the worst. Um, mm -hmm. You know, bar tables that are tippy. What's up with that? We haven't figured out tippy bar tables. Really? Yeah, really? Well, we still got we a have, wedge of. wobble wedge technology that we I know, can but carry we around a, with us. But we got still. a wedge a wad of like rolled mm -hmm. up. Napkins and then say, oh, we got too many layers of paper. Now it's tipping the other way. I'm just saying, yeah. like, you know, we should aim high and figure out the low stuff too. Yeah, but my anyway. wife bought bought these wobble wedges that that you can stick under wobbly yeah. tables, and she's always so proud of herself if she For can get a wobble wedge and, and solve party, the right? day. Yeah, save the day. It's great, but it would be nice if we could solve that issue, like on the supply side. You know, just on the front end, just right. not have the wobbles in the first place, and, and not need sort of a a consumer solution to right. that problem. Anyway. Tyro Estrada is hurt, <laughs> and yeah. uh, he's like a top thirty player in baseball this yeah. year. So, so Sucks. that is a, a blow. Rich Hill, though, <laughs> he keeps on trucking. You know, bad news for Nelson Cruz this week. Bad news for Adam Wainwright all season. Right? Speaking yeah. of injuries, it hasn't been going well. 
No, he just went on the IL with just like a he's been bad itis, it seems like. I mean, <laughs> I don't know. I guess when you're, what, almost 42 years old and you've been pitching as long as Adam Wainwright is, like, you could probably credibly get away with the shoulder discomfort. Like, I imagine there probably is always some degree of discomfort in the shoulder. And I think Ali Marmol said there are a variety of limitations is why they're putting him on the IL. I mean, with some guys, you might have to, you know, you always have to provide some justification or documentation. But when you're talking about a, an oldster like Adam Wade, right, it might just be like, yeah, come on in. You, you can put him on the IL. Like he's, he's, he's old. Like I'm sure something hurts. So just go ahead. His ERA alone is evidence that everything probably hurts for him. So, I mean, he's got a 7.66 ERA after the latest blow up, a, a near six FIP. And I do wonder whether he's wishing he had retired last year. You know, like I would never say that someone should have retired. I, I'm fully supportive of someone playing as long as they possibly can. But I wonder whether he feels like, you know what, it would have been kind of nice to go out last year with Yachty and Albert, right? And and it could have been the three of us. And they got celebrated plenty as it was, but there was always the like, well, we don't actually know that Adam Wainwright is retiring and, and he didn't. So if he had been able to go out with that trio on a solid season for him and a solid season for the Cardinals who made the playoffs, as opposed to being the last man standing of that trio this year, playing terribly as the Cardinals as a whole play terribly, like that that's a much more depressing way to go out. Now, if he had retired after last season, he maybe could have kicked himself and said, hey, I, I had more in me, right? And maybe he would have had regrets. Whereas now he might say, okay, I do not have more in me. <laughs> it appears that I do not. And then he could sail off into retirement with his mind made up about that. So maybe that peace of mind, that would bug me maybe. If I were a pitcher like Adam Wainwright, I'm not saying he's like going to be a Hall of Famer or anything, but I would want to ring out the last uh, drop of, of performance I had, I think, probably if I were as good at anything, if I were as as baseball players are at, at baseballing. So maybe that's some consolation. But all in all, it's if this is the end for him, it's a, a much less celebratory way to leave than than leaving on a high note would have been. Yeah, I think I think that sadly that's right. But, mm -hmm. you know, we can still remember fondly like an earlier time in his career mm -hmm. and I'm sure that you know, I don't I don't imagine that it will take very long for the sort of <sighs> stink is too strong, but disappointment. There's a better word that doesn't imply <laughs> smell. Um it won't take very long for us to shift into like, wow, what a career mode when it comes to him in yeah. a way that um, I imagine will be very satisfying to him and very satisfying to Cardinals fans. So it's like, it's it's not too far away. I'm sure it feels that way because it's July 5th and, you know, the Cardinals are 35 and 50 and it's like, wow, Oof. he's on the IL and they have to just keep playing. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. that's a thing that's mm -hmm. true. Hmm. Yep. But Rich Hill, he just keeps on trucking, and uh, he is 40th in innings pitched this season, which is pretty impressive at his uh, advanced age, I say, with, with great fondness. And and maybe he'll be a trade deadline pickup for someone. <laughs> you know, he's got he's to gotta go. He's got to check another team off his bingo card, right? So I am excited. The Rich Hill sweepstakes. Where will he land next? But, where will he land yeah. next? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe he will land with one of the— 
or re-land, depending. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm with one of the teams in Los Angeles, you know? Yeah, Maybe uh, it's time yeah. for a Dodgers reunion with one Rich Hill. Yeah, I want him to have another team, though. So I don't want him to go to either oh. the Dodgers or the, the Angels. I want a new team to experience the joy of, of Rich Hill. He's I mean, that's kind of Check another box. Then. That's yeah. kind of picky. I know. It definitely limits the destinations. But, yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, ben, I feel like I need to offer a correction on a previous post of mine regarding oh, okay. the Seattle Mariners and mm. their all-star selection. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, that's right. We lamented <laughs> that they only had one. And uh, as I said last time, you can't lament anything about all-star selections because it, it will change before the all-star game. Like, whatever the complaint is, we we were like, Wander Franco's got to be an all-star, right? Well, yeah, yeah Wander he Franco, is. he's an all-star now. The thing so about it okay. is the thing <laughs> about it that is that he is. But yes. in addition to it being premature on my part, <laughs> you know, I – look, in a fit of frustration, I might have been – I might have been uh, overly harsh to specific members of my Seattle Mariners. <laughs> um, and I might have said that if they wanted to have more uh, hometown representation, that they could simply play better. You know, <laughs> mm-hmm. I did say that. And you did, yeah. I think that there are, to be clear, wide swaths of the roster that that, that really does apply to. You know, mm-hmm. that is like a, a a true fact and, you know, a bit of, of feedback that I don't think is out of place. But, Ben, yeah. I wasn't specific enough. Uh-huh. And I'm here to tell you two things about your Seattle Mariners because mm-hmm. now we're going to make it your problem too. <laughs> the first is that, so previously they're only – all-star selection, as we uh, covered, was one Luis Castillo, who is having a nice little season. One of their additional selections made over the weekend uh, was George Kirby. George mm-hmm. Kirby, by our version of war, having a better season than Luis Castillo. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, as as is Logan Gilbert, who's not yet an all-star, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and so, you know— in that respect, I want to apologize to George and his family, really, because <laughs> George has been pitching great. He's, you know, eighth in starting pitcher war among American League starters, qualified American League starters, right? And to your point, Logan Gilbert sitting there at 10th, not yet an all-star, but who knows, you know, maybe mm-hmm. maybe uh, we did do some stuff. So yep. would like to say that. I also would like to note that while his season has been down relative to last year, that when you look at qualified American League outfielders, uh, again, by our version of war, you know who's sitting there at five is one Julio Rodriguez. And he is now, he is is. now an all-star, you know, playing Mm -hmm. center field, it helps. um, And hitting home runs also helps. He's been playing Mm -hmm. better of late. I mean, he's been hitting better of late. He's been playing good center field all season. So, you know, I think that, uh, and and so he he was named an All Star um, replacement over the weekend because, as we have famously noted, Mike Trout no longer able to play mm-hmm. in that game or any others for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, when you look at the American League roster, both Trout and Aaron Judge, who were two of the three starting outfielders, obviously unavailable for the game due to injury. Right. Franco replaced Judge, I think. I think you're right. 
And then over the weekend, you know, we had some additions. Kyle Tucker also named to the roster. Obviously, Jordan Alvarez unable to play. And so, you know, now the reserves for um, the American League in the outfield are, you know, Luis Robert Jr., Austin Hayes, mm-hmm. Adoles Garcia, Kyle Tucker, and Julio Rodriguez. And so really the only person who might be like, hey, now, what about me is Leody Tavares, who's having a nice, mm-hmm. very nice season, Ben. Very nice yeah. season at the plate. And like where, you know, we we put in all of these Rangers. I mean, is there, where's, the, where's the love for Leody, right? This is mm-hmm. what I asked. But I just, if you were a Mariners fan and you're like, gosh, make sure it's sour about them right now. You're not wrong. And I just want to, you know, issue a correction on a previous post. All right. I'm sure that's uh, appreciated by, <laughs> I don't know, George Kirby's family. Yeah, because <laughs> I'm sure they listen to the, the podcast. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. They were like, well, what does the man have to do to be good enough for you, Meg? Huh? Yeah. What does he have to do? <laughs> we talked about some of the oldest players in baseball. I did want to mention, we talked about the oldest Cardinal, the youngest Cardinal, Jordan Walker. Mm. Now, he's he's putting together an interesting statistical season. Weird. Very, Weird little year. Very, because he is sub-replacement level, mm-hmm. according to Fangrass and Baseball Reference, but he has a 120 WRC+. Plus. And I was wondering about that combination of things, a sub-replacement level player who is 20% or more above average offensively. That is hard to do. And in fact, it has been done only twice by an AL or NL player with at least 300 plate appearances. Jordan Walker is at 180 now. And it happened both times in 2008. So <laughs> Brad Brad Hopp did it in 2008 for the Rockies. He had a 122 WRC plus, and he ended up at negative 0.7 WAR. And uh, you know it's a defense. It was bad defense and not great base running, not bad. And then <laughs> famously, infamously. Ryan Domit for mm-hmm. the Pirates, so we will never see his likes again as no. a framer, I'm afraid. But he was at 123 WRC plus and negative 3.4 WAR <laughs> because he basically, according to the framing metrics, cost his team half a run a game or so. It's like it's like your your run scored total started at negative 0.5 every day that. Ryan Domit was catching for you. Just just amazing. I miss the days of comparing Ryan Domit and Jose Molina, the extremes oh, at yeah. either end of the framing scale. Yeah. Now, if you if you look at baseball reference, different war model, then it's uh, very rare there as well, but different names. Brad Hopp does qualify in 2008. Baseball reference doesn't include framing in catcher war, so no Ryan Domit. However, Adam Dunn qualifies in 2009 when he had a 144 mm. WRC OPS plus, sorry, for the Nationals and hit 38 home runs and had a 398 on base and he was still <laughs> still negative 0.4 war just because the defense was that bad. It was not quite as bad, I guess, at Fangraphs, so he was a little bit above replacement level, but. It's done. It's Gary Sheffield in 1993 with the Padres and Marlins. He had a 120 OPS plus and was uh, below replacement just a bit, negative 0.1, as was Jerry Lynch in 1964, also negative 0.1 with a 130 OPS plus. Jordan Walker has a 115 WRC plus now, so he would not qualify there. But 
we'll see whether this persists and whether he's uh, able to have this very strange season. I drafted him on my 26 under 25 team, so obviously I want him to amass war, some positive war here to help my team, and the Cardinals would like that as well. But it's a very strange season for him, like encouraging in a lot of respects, a lot of long hitting streaks, but also lots of hitting the ball on the ground and also not looking like an outfielder because uh, he wasn't one until fairly recently. So yeah, yeah, it's odd. I do wonder if the fact that Nolan Gorman is proving to be like reasonable in the field is just going to let him DH soon. And if we won't Mm -hmm. see everything just get better. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I mean, I know that DHing brings for some guys its own problems, right? And that is itself an adjustment. So I don't want to say that like, oh, well, magically. You know, I'm doing a little snappy thing into the microphone just in case you can't hear me going snap magic. But, you know, it does seem like he would benefit from not having to do the thing that he routinely fails at. And in like, it's not that it's a little bit bad. It's like sometimes you watch it and you're like, oh, like that's quite alarmingly bad. You know, Um, it doesn't always jump out at you that way. But um, I think that when it comes to his outfield defense, it, it sort of does. So it seems like it would be good to let him just hit and focus on that and continue adjusting to to big league pitching when that's all he has to focus on doing. And then, you know, if in the offseason the determination is we really need to be able to have this guy in the field some of the time uh, to justify keeping him on the active roster, then, okay, you 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 have a longer sort of runway to get him situated there. But, well, yes seems yeah <laughs> or they could feign an injury and send him to the fall league again let him sure. play play outfield in arizona for a couple weeks mm-hmm. yeah so. might help and uh, lastly another young guy has arrived the orioles have promoted yet another yeah. top prospect not their tippy top prospect but but a, a top one colton Kowser has arrived now and i'm trying to remember a team that promoted as many top prospects in the span of basically a year now, right? It's been a, a little more than a year since Adley Rutschman came up. And then you have Gunnar Henderson, Grayson Rodriguez, Jordan Westberg, now Colton Kowser. And that's just like the the really highly rated rookies and prospects. There's Joey Ortiz, right, who was a top 100 guy. I'm probably leaving out others. And they still have a whole bunch coming, right? Jackson Holiday was one of the best of the bunch, and uh, Kobe Mayo, and Heston Kirstad, which I said correctly this time. Yeah. <laughs> and, and more. I'm just, I'm trying to remember other systems that may have promoted this many highly rated prospects in this short a time frame. I mean, there have been some other legendarily great systems in the yeah. past uh, decade or two. Yeah, it feels like the Padres have to be in that conversation right. at some the Padres, point. Padres, yeah, the, yeah. The Rays maybe. Like there have been some really great systems. This sure is probably fodder for good, yeah. yeah, a stat blast or something, but if anyone can think of examples of this many like quality and quantity because it's like not just a lot but a lot who are actually like toward the top of, of prospect lists and, and more on the way. So 
I mean, <laughs> that tank is paying dividends these days. I mean, I hate to say it that way, but man, it's a really rich system and it's got to be so fun for Orioles fans right now. We're like every other week, it's like, oh, meet our new amazing prospect. And there's another one waiting in the wings right behind him. That's, don't know if it's worth it, but I know that this part of the process has to be a ton of fun. Yeah. I mean, I think that like when you're, when it pays off on the back end, it it's still from a process perspective isn't going to be my favorite, but like it at least at least you get the start of the payoff right in mm-hmm. a way that makes it feel like it wasn't simply a cost saving thing. It was that and this mm-hmm. <laughs> right. It was both things in concert, which is better than taking the one without the other. But yeah, I mean, yeah, like there's probably a Padres system in the year in mm-hmm. there. There's probably a Dodgers year in there, mm-hmm. depending on how you define the time frame. Like maybe some of this D-backs group, maybe. But maybe, yeah. Or going back even further, you could probably, you know, like uh, the the dynasty Yankees, like sure. the, the core totally. four coming up, excluding Bernie Williams uh, unjustly as he always is from that core, but he came up a little earlier. So, yeah, there have been some great cores that have come along yeah. together, but tough to beat this. This yeah. is it's a pretty impressive display of yeah. uh, a prospect parade. Yes, agreed. Agreed. All right. I've got some emails here, and maybe this will be a natural progression from what we were just talking about. This is a question from Griffin, Patreon supporter, who says, I'm a big Red Sox fan, and I've been following Tristan Cassis. From what I've seen, I think he's progressed well. He's got a great walk rate, especially. However, I've met several Red Sox fans who haven't seen the same thing and think he's stalled out as a prospect. And I believe Eric Longenhagen used Dahlbeck and Casas in the same sentence in his Top 46 overview. Is there a general process or are there stats to follow that can give me a better idea of how a player is developing? So how do you monitor player development from afar, let's say, especially if you're not Eric Longenhagen, if you're not a scouty person, if you're not going to games, if you don't have access to some of the stuff that Eric gets access to, a minor league statcast style stuff, some of that you can find. So some things have to be sourced, right? But uh, how would you follow a player and, and monitor their development. It's uh, tricky because I guess there are an infinite number of developmental pathways that uh, a player could take, and you'd probably be looking at different benchmarks and, and milestones for each player, depending on what they need to work on and what kind of player they are. I mean, I think that, and I don't say this just to like tout our, our coverage, but I think that increasingly when you look at like public side prospect analysis that most of, if not all of the the work that's being done at sort of the big sites that you would know the names of are, are folks who are looking at more granular stackcast data to help them get a, a better sense of like what is real and meaningful uh, performance relative to the minor league stats. Because like you, you, it's not that that doesn't matter, right? But there's, a ton of context with within that that can kind of cloud the picture of how meaningful it's going to be, how 
how likely it is that those skills are going to translate to either the next rung of the minor league ladder or eventually the big leagues. And so I think engaging with public side analysis is helpful because you are going to get even sort of vicariously access to data like that that helps to inform how public side analysts look at these guys, right? So you know, rather than simply looking at slugging, they're looking at hard hit rate, they're looking at max exit velos, they're going to have more granular swing data, right? So they're going to be able to, on the hitter side, be able to say more than just like, here's what his walk and strikeout rate was, right? It's like, here's, you know, you can look at all kinds of like chase data, all sorts of stuff like that, right? So there's like that piece of it, which I think people should read and you know, not just at our site, but across the internet, because I think that there are, there tends to be consensus, even if the order isn't precisely the same at the top, when you're looking at different sites, top 100s, they tend to, they tend to look kind of similar in terms of who are the consensus best guys, but there's going to be difference between the whatever tool grade and grade metric you use, but like just to keep it simple, we'll use future value. Like there's going to be disagreements across sites in terms of the future value that a prospect might have. They might have disagreements over sort of how robust different tool grades are. And like, you know, the ordinal rankings don't actually tell you that much. Like, I think it's more important to focus on stuff like future value. So there's that piece of it. I think that it's important for you to familiarize yourself with like, what are the differences in the various offensive environments that these guys are playing in, right? Because I think that's something that can happen and it wouldn't be anybody's fault, but like you might look at a hitter who's playing in a league where like all of the ballparks are super home run friendly or the park factors are off the off the charts and you might be like, wow, that guy's amazing. And then he goes to an environment where that's not true. And you're like, oh, well, some of that was where he's playing. Like Mm -hmm. Like Joe Adele and his 23 dinger switches, uh, you know, still somewhat impressive, but you definitely, there's some inflation going on. Right. So you need that context, right? I think that, and this isn't perfect. And there are some teams that I think are more sort of straightforward about what it means than others. But like, Teams tell you a lot about what they think of their guys based on how they are promoting them. So, like, the speed with which a guy is being promoted, what is his age relative to the level, right? So, like, is this a really young guy who's, you know, at double A and maybe he's not hitting great, but when you take in the context of his age, it's like, wow, that's really impressive for a insert you know, teenage shortstop. I can't believe he's hitting like that. So having a sense of how a guy is being promoted and where he fits within sort of the context of his level, I think is good. And then like, go watch guys. Like, you know, you're not going to necessarily have like a scout's eye for stuff, but, and it definitely takes an adjustment if you are going from watching mostly big league ball to then watching like whatever your local minor league team is, you're going to be like, wow, there is a noticeable gap between the talent levels of these guys. But like, go watch some, go watch some minor league ball if it's close to you. Like to get a sense, even if you're not seeing prospects who you like super care about, like maybe the the closest affiliate to you isn't, you know, an affiliate of your favorite team, but like it does help you to sort of calibrate, you know, what's up with, what's up with that, you know? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I think that those are good things to do. And, you know, 
What else, Ben? Well, with Cassis specifically, I, I kind of like him because you look at all the different things he does well. He has good plate discipline, right? So of the 151 qualified hitters this year, he is 32nd in the ratio of, of zone swings to outside the zone swings. So he swings at some strikes and doesn't chase a lot of likely balls. And then it's not like he's just trying to work walks, although he does work walks and has some long plate appearances, but he can also put a charge into the ball, right? Uh, he has uh, his max exit velocity this year is 113 point something. So he's like, uh, he's 34th in hard hit rate among those qualified hitters. He is, uh, I think, in max exit velo. He's 41st. So he can be selective and he can also hit the ball hard. And if you look at his expected weighted on base compared to his uh, actual, he's uh, hit the ball better than his results would show. So these are all things that you can look at maybe more easily when a player is at the major league level to monitor their progress than at the minor league level. But I think he has been better and is more promising than his roughly league average line this season would suggest. Obviously, first baseman, he's got a hit and the first base defensive metrics have been bad. I haven't really watched enough of him day in and day out to know how horrible he is there. But there's a lot to like about that profile, I think. So, yeah, it varies by the player, obviously, and you just got to look at age relative to league and is he doing it at a level where he's young for that level and he's been promoted aggressively, as you said. And and there are some places you can look for, for things like swing decisions. You know, there's the, the minor league uh, substack down on the farm that I look at sometimes and, and it will have interesting stats that aren't easily accessible everywhere about minor league performance. And you can look at minor league leaderboards at uh, Fangraphs and, and various other places, right? And you just debuted a new tool, actually, I think yeah. I saw that would be helpful for, for this. Uh, Jason Martinez and his great roster resource has become an even better resource because there's now a, a minor league baseball power rankings leaderboard that you can access at Fangrass. We'll link to it, but it kind of shows you who's having the best seasons in the minors and ranks them by various uh, statistical factors. So there are a lot of resources out there you can check, but also, yeah, defer to the experts to some extent, the people who are going to those games and have scouting experience and people like Eric who are talking to people in the industry all the time and synthesizing the insights that they get from that. You're never going to know as much uh, probably as as those people, not that they're always right or that you'll always be wrong, but you're not taking in quite as much information. So it's uh, helpful to be able to use their information as a resource, which uh, I do just as much as uh, anyone else who doesn't do that full time does. I agree. I don't and um, don't want to suggest that there's like infallibility there, but I also think that it's useful in addition to the just the pure information that you're getting. Like it is it's useful to think about how these folks sort of think about prospects, right? Like what what is it that they are looking at? What proves to be relevant to them? And what do they sort of discard as like ephemera that isn't really going to tell them much about what a guy might project to be as he's as he's advancing through the minor. So it's just a, a useful sort of level setting exercise. And I think that even if they're not right on 
every prospect because none none of them are. Um, and there are a lot of people doing really good work in this space, but you know, your hit rate is not going to be a hundred percent by any means. But it does help to kind of arm you with a good sense of what matters and what doesn't and and how they think about the translation from the minors to the majors. And if you're wanting to look at it from a purely statistical perspective, like I think that paying attention to the work that say Dan does where he will use zips to, you know, generate ranks for prospects and zips is taking their, all of the, not every single thing, but taking a bunch of the statistical information that they are generating at the minor league level and using, you know, beep, boop, bop, boop, math to translate mm-hmm. it to something at the major league level. Like that's another avenue to try to get a sense of what these guys might do as they march their way to the big league roster. So that can be another useful input. All right. Here is a question from Joshua who says, I'm a season ticket holder for the Fayetteville Woodpeckers, the low A Astros affiliate. And I believe I may have just witnessed the dumbest ending to a baseball game I've ever seen, at least since the walk-off balk I saw at the same stadium last summer. In the top of the ninth, this was this weekend, a guest Woodpeckers pitcher struggled to throw strikes and ended up giving up a walk and a home run that brought the game to within one run. After plunking the next batter, the winning run came to the plate with only one out. Again, the pitcher struggled to throw strikes, but as ball three crashed into the dirt, the opposing batter mistakenly bat-flipped and trotted to first, believing that he had been walked. The runner on first was thrown out trying to, quote-unquote, steal second— And then the poor batter had to slink back to the plate for another pitch. He hit a fly out that barely left the infield for the final out. Woodpeckers win eight to seven. (laughs) So so the batter thought he had walked, but it was actually ball three. So he bat flips and starts trotting down to first. The runner who had been on first saw the guy celebrating the walk and thought, oh, okay, he walked. I can just stroll down to second. But no, it was not a walk. And so he got thrown out, quote unquote, stealing. (laughs) And Joshua says, what's the dumbest ending to a baseball game you've ever seen? What are some other plays that have similarly hilarious discrepancies between the official game log and the action on the field? Yeah, because the the official game log here does not say this, that uh, he was thrown out like a nincompoop basically because he thought that uh, <laughs> there was a walk. So I don't, I don't know. It's, that's tough, tough to beat that one. That is definitely that's one of the bad. dumbest endings. I can, I can recall that is, whew, that is super dumb. Um, I remember there was one, viral play did you see earlier this season it was like in may it was from a high school baseball game and it was like i'm i'm looking hornell high school this was i think in new york and it was uh, a seasonal championship game hornell high school was up 5-4 in the bottom of the 7th against palmyra macedon which had a runner on second with two outs with two strikes the batter was called out after taking a called third strike but right after originally calling the batter out, the umpire realized the catcher had dropped the ball and then made a safe sign, meaning the catcher had to throw the ball down to first to complete the strikeout and officially end the game. But Hornell's players didn't see the safe sign and they started celebrating. Meanwhile, the runner on second and the batter who was trying to reach first safely after the strikeout started running around the bases. <laughs> and then all the Hornell players were celebrating and like one guy realizes what's going on and is pointing to home plate to throw the ball, but it was too late. 
and so that it was a 6-5 win. And uh, then the other team ran onto the field and started celebrating. <laughs> so it was like back-to-back, yes, we just won celebration. And then the Hornell players are like, you know, pleading with the umpires, but they ultimately upheld the call and Palmyra Macedon moved on to a, a state tournament qualifier and Hornell season was over. So so that was wonderful and terrible at the same time. It's, it's tough to beat that because, yeah, like we've seen walk-off box and, and that sort of thing, but that doesn't quite compare to to that. That's <laughs> that's you know, that's bad. It's really bad, Ben. You know, mm-hmm. it's not just bad. It's it's really bad. And it just reinforces for me. I want to be clear before I remind people that I have this take. I don't have any objection to players bat flipping. Like I'm not unwritten rulesing this. I simply marvel at the confidence, right? Because I would be terrified that this would happen to me every time if I were a big leaguer and I were bat flipping. I would just assume that I had misjudged it, that it wasn't a walk, that I hadn't hit the ball as hard as I thought, that it didn't go over the fence. It has settled into the outfielder's glove or worse, hasn't, but now I really got to hustle to second so that I am not just like taking a very slow single here. I would be terrified that I would just be embarrassed all the time. This might be true of other aspects of me potentially being a big leaguer, so who could say? But like, I just marvel at the confidence, and I know that it is the result of, you know, in most cases, a true understanding of their skill and reps upon reps upon reps upon reps so that they know what it sounds like when they've actually hit a home run, etc. But I would still not have the confidence, even on a walk, which is arguably, like, how do you goof that up? Like, you should, <laughs> you know, like, you should, you should know. Yeah, if you can beat that, it's it's tough to beat the game-ending fart slam, right? Fielder allows runner to score like a moron. <laughs> so, I mean, I'll link to, there's a, a Fadgraph's uh, Hardball Times article from some years ago, the 15 worst endings ever to regular season games. There's some lists out there like that. But, but if you can top those two endings we just mentioned there, then please let us know because it's a high bar to clear or a low bar to limbo under, depending on your perspective. Question from Christian, Patreon supporter. It has come to my attention that Fallout Boy has unironically covered We Didn't Start the Fire, referencing events from 1989 to 2023. I am devastated. After coming down from the initial shock, I examined the lyrics for baseball references, for this is a song for which lyrics demand to be heard and understood. The Cubs go all the way again gets the first sports reference and the only baseball reference unless we count Michael Jordan for his minor league stint. By comparison, Billy Joel's original lyrics contain at least six baseball references. Those are Joe DiMaggio, The Catcher in the Rye. I don't think we can call The Catcher in the Rye a, a baseball reference, uh, right? That That's not related to an actual catcher, no. I don't believe. <laughs> that's it's a different, different kind of catcher. I mean, The Catcher in the Rye is a baseball book. There's the symbolic mitt and everything, but it's not in the song because of baseball. Roy Campanella, though, the Dodgers, Brooklyn's got a winning team, Mickey Mantle, and the Giants and Dodgers, again, California baseball. So is this discrepancy between the baseball representation of the two versions of We Didn't Start the Fire, is this discrepancy a sign of baseball's decline in the zeitgeist? 
what baseball events, figures, or literature that occurred from 1989 to now are deserving of references in this pop cultural amalgamation song, we only asked for tongue-in-cheek. So I heard Mike Pesca break down this cover on The Gist the other day, and he pointed out, look, as maligned as the original Billy Joel song is, it does get stuck in your head, but people are usually unhappy to have it there, right? And I think Billy Joel has owned up to that himself. But the quality of the lyrics, at least Billy Joel does go almost exactly and precisely in chronological order with his references, whereas Fallout Boys is just uh, skipping all around the timeline. And also the rhymes, the rhymes are very questionable relative to the original, not only because some of them just don't really rhyme, but also because like he rhymes George Floyd with Metroid and it's like... <laughs> really like are we are we doing that but also i think there's just not a ton of sports representation here period so it it might reflect the affinities of the the singers and lyricists here billy joel is uh, of a certain age and also likes baseball although you can kind of catch him with yankees hats and mets hats he's a new york guy right but i think the sports references in this song so I think there are two baseball references for sure because, yeah, there's the the Cubs going all the way and then there's Michael Jordan 23 in one line and Michael Jordan 45 in another line. 23 obviously being his basketball number, 45 being his baseball number. So that's a baseball reference pretty explicitly, I think. So that's two baseball references. And then LeBron gets mentioned, Tiger Woods, Venus and Serena – Michael Jordan, 23, as I said. So that gives you two basketball references. And then Kaepernick, obviously Colin Kaepernick's not there primarily for his football play, right? He's, you know, a cultural figure. So I don't think there's any sport that's more represented really than baseball. Baseball has two references here. Basketball has two. Football, which is like the dominant cultural force sports-wise of this period, has Kaepernick, which is kind of a qualified, I mean, there's no Tom Brady or anything in here, right? So I I think baseball actually does fairly well here, but it's a little less represented. And I guess you could chalk that up to the time and the age of the singer, right? And uh, it's not the quote unquote golden age of baseball that's being referenced here, although I would quibble with that designation, but that does reflect a certain prominence that baseball had in the zeitgeist at that time, right? So I think that has receded somewhat. So uh, that is reflected in the song. But but the question about what should be in there, baseball references, 1989 to 2023, like I still think baseball is, if anything, overrepresented in pop culture relative to its popularity. Like you haven't seen the bear, right? But I in, have not. But I've heard it's a. I I have heard from friend of the show Zach Buchanan that it's a baseball show. It is. It is a baseball show. Maybe in multiple ways, but but in I think the penultimate episode of the second season, there's a an extended riff about Bartman and Alex Gonzalez and and that whole saga. So another Cubs reference in there. And then like uh, there's a new. Bad Bunny song. We were alerted by a, a listener. There's a, a Tiny and Bad Bunny song that just came out a few days ago called Mojave Ghost, and it has a reference to Otani. So 
I think there's still a lot of baseball in pop culture. And if if we were going to stick some more baseball references into a We Didn't Start the Fire re-record, I mean, I guess Otani would probably be in there at this point. Maybe, I don't know, like the, the 1989 earthquake. That was Maybe. a pretty big deal. Might have some steroid. Yeah, this and definitely, that in right? There. Steroid era. Yeah. So that's got to be represented, you know, McGuire and, and Sosa and Bonds and all that. The home run chase, that's got to be there. The strike, maybe. Strike was, was a pretty big. Uh, Cal Ripken, possibly, breaking Luke Gehrig's records. I don't know, Ken Griffey Jr., just being, yeah. being junior. A, yeah, <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, as both a baseball player and a cultural force, that seems right. Like it would fit. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's at least a handful that yeah. I don't think would be out of place in a song like this. He wouldn't raise an eyebrow and, and say, really? That that made the list? So you might raise an eyebrow to Fall Out Boy. You might, yeah, the it, existence but. of the song, maybe. But <laughs> but yes, I, I think there could legitimately be more baseball representation there. But but a lot of those examples we just cited also are from the earlier part of, of that time period. So Otani, at this point, he's uh, one of the only things that moves the needle from a <laughs> cultural national, international perspective. Although I guess uh, the banging scheme, could you put the banging scheme in the song? Yeah. Maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly, apart from steroids, the biggest scandal Mm -hmm. that the sport has seen since, you know, the last song came out. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. All right. Jeremy, Patreon supporter, says, I was recently at a game at Dodger Stadium and an interesting dilemma came up. The Dodgers have a promotion with Jack in the Box where patrons can get a free Jumbo Jack with the purchase- Yeah, with the purchase of a drink if the Dodgers get 10 or more strikeouts in a game. With the Dodgers leading in the top of the ninth, the Pirates, uh, who are the Dodgers' kryptonite apparently, had a runner on first and nobody out. The Dodgers' pitching staff stood at eight strikeouts for the game. There was a ground ball which the Dodgers turned for a double play. Good, right? But now they could not get that 10th strikeout unless they gave up the lead and the game went into extras. Should the infield have gone only for the lead runner? And preserve the possibility of Jumbo Jacks for Hungry Angelinos. Where is the line between sending them home happy and sending them home hungry? Well, I'd say um, that when one can secure a win, which is a thing that you are likely to remember about your attendance, you should do that. Because you're going to forget the free burger, you know, particularly if you have to, like, it would be different if, when you were walking out of the ballpark, they're like, here's a free burger. You know, we we prepared all these burgers on the off chance we could give them away. But, uh, you know, you got to go to Jack in the Box and you got to buy a thing to get the free thing, right? Like, it's not just you got a free thing. You have to, you, you got to be like, hey, I'm buying this other thing and then I guess I get this free thing. So I think um, I have the very hot take that you should just win the game with fewer strikeouts, and as a result, fewer free qualified free burgers. Because it's not totally free, qualified free. And they're going to be mostly content with that, uh, is is my yeah. guess. So. Yeah. I can't testify to the quality of the Jack in the Box burger. I don't know that I have had the pleasure, if it's a pleasure. I assume it's a, a pleasure that seems to be baked into the premise of the question or grilled in to the premise. But I think given the difficulties that the Dodgers have had pitching-wise, which we yeah. covered earlier in this episode. They I just think, want to win. Yeah, I think you got to go for the double play there and not the the double Jack-in-the-box play, unfortunately. I think that that's right. And, and you know, 
would my answer change with a different restaurant associated with the free thing? I mean, maybe, maybe, Ben. But, um, you know, the other big uh, common promotion is getting free tacos. Like with the Diamondbacks, if I think if they score a certain number of runs, you get free tacos. But they're from Taco Bell. And it's like, look, I'm not here to judge anyone's Crunchwrap uh, proclivities. We have all been drunk at two in the morning. Look, it happens. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe not you, because you're not a you're not a big drinker. But like, we've all been there, right? I have. Oh it's been a while, but I have. Need a need <laughs> yeah. a taco. Like, I get it. But mm-hmm. it is. I'm gonna go so far as to say, kind of galling, um, living here to be like, uh, you know, you get Taco Bell. It's like mm-hmm. really of all the places I mean, to go. We're always thrilled when there's the stolen base in the playoffs and you get to claim your free Taco Bell, right? That's a, yeah. It's a national event. Do you think they'll do that promotion this year or is it too <laughs> likely to succeed? <laughs> right, because of the new rules. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. Yeah, that promotion, that could go in the Fallout Boys song, I think. Yeah. that's. I mean, the whole country can get into that, right? Free Taco Bell. All right. Question from Dan, Patreon supporter. The Louisa Rise hit slash error conspiracy theory. The theory oh, that uh, maybe MLB said, uh, hey, be a little more lenient when it comes to Luis Rise going for 400. Give him a hit instead of an error. Maybe they're doing that league-wide. Had me wondering if MLB wanted to juice Arise's 400 chase, a la the alleged judge home run chase ball juicing, what kind of ball should they ship to Miami? What characterizes a base hit Goldilocks ball. So it's one thing if you just want to hit the ball as far as possible and hit a home run, then you can juice the ball in the accepted ways. But what if you just want to juice batting average for a riser or the league as a whole? I could imagine a more juiced ball possibly hurting him because he hits the ball, they call it the donut hole, right? He hits it in that spot where it goes over the infield, but it falls in front of the outfielders, even though they play shallow against him. So if you had a, a more juiced ball that would carry a little farther, then maybe it would get to those outfielders who are already playing in and, and that would actually be bad. But if you didn't it for, maybe it's already the sweet spot ball for a rise. I don't know, but if you deadened it further, if you if you deadened the ball league wide, then in the long run, that might lead to more singles because uh, hitters would not swing for the fences as much in theory. They wouldn't be rewarded for that behavior. And so they would try to put the ball in play and uh, be slappier. And that might lead to more balls in play and, and more balls on the ground and more singles. So I guess that's one thing you could do, just kind of generically deaden the ball, (laughs) but unless you were going to change something else about, I don't know, not how hard it's hit or not how far it carries, but something else about the aerodynamics where it would like fall faster or something like, I don't know, something like the flaps on the wings of a plane that are just like angled (laughs) in a different way, depending on, yeah, whether you're going up or down, but, but it would be like that, but on the baseball so that it would like go up in the air and, and it would more steeply descend, something like that. Just a little little flaps on the baseball for Luisa Rice. So maybe maybe that would help. I don't know what else. Doesn't the fact that he that everyone that this seems to be a, a shift in sort of league wide scoring policy suggest that it is not being done for the benefit specifically of him? 
Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's being done for him. I don't know if it's being done at all. I mean, we can talk about the hits errors thing. I I think maybe I'll do a stat blast on that sometime soon. But as for Arise himself, like you could see why why MLB would want to boost batting averages, especially after they made some rules changes and the positioning change. And hey, we want to have something to show for this to show that it worked. But I don't know what you could do other than like introduce something to make the ball behave in an unpredictable, erratic way. Like, I don't know what that would be, but <laughs> the error ball. Just, yeah. Literally. Yeah. But, right. but not, right? No, it's just, no, no, not errors, but right. <laughs> it would induce mistakes, uh, inability to field the ball, but it would be scored as a single so we could get him to 400. But, but yeah, some sort of like, I don't know, like those balls that have like gyroscopes inside them or something. So they they move in weird ways, like something like that, where you just get a bad hop every time, right? Just unpredictable bounces, something like that. Or it would just fly erratically through the air. Again, you'd have to have some sort of like unaerodynamic thing like jutting off it or whatever. I don't know if the, the theory, I assume that they want this to remain undetected, this, right. this tampering. This so, is the problem. So yeah, maybe some some sort of gyroscopic core that would cause like slightly unpredictable bounces, right? <laughs> but it would be undetectable from outside. Yeah, I I guess. I mean, I guess that that's what you'd want. Although it's like, is that what you want if he is really such a bat and barrel control savant that he's able to just poke it where he wants it? Like, do you want right. that as yeah. a as a headwind to his existing skill? <laughs> Yeah, maybe you want know, it to man. be predictable because he's so good at at angling it already. Yeah, it is. like, yeah. oh, what what do you yeah. do then? You yeah. know, well, here's another Arise inspired question from Adrian, inspired by Skip Schumacher's recent revelation that Luis Arise apparently predicts the outcome of every plate appearance, both good and bad. I got to wondering this important question: If a baseball player came to possess a genie that was able to give the player any hitting outcome they wanted, so long as they asked for it before the at bat in the dugout. What kind of career line or per season line would that player aim for to get away with it? Presumably you want to do very well since you have the incredible ability to choose to hit as many homers or other hits as possible, but you also don't want to arouse suspicion that you are cheating in this profound way, especially since you have to ask out loud for the hitting outcome. Just because these details seem integral, let's say the genie is invisible when the player makes the vocal request and there's no physical lamp binding the genie that you have to hold, how would you balance the ability to do as well as humanly possible, or better than humanly possible, I suppose, with the need to not have too much superhuman performance? And I feel like we've answered this genre of question, right? Like, there's, you're a wizard, you're a witch, you have some supernatural power on your side, but you do not want to be burned at the stake and you do not want to be drummed out of the sport. So so you want to kind of keep that ability on the down low, right? You want to like fly under the radar here. So you have to temper your outcomes somewhat so you're not maxing out fully because that would arouse suspicion. I would be the 34th best player in baseball. Mm, okay. All right. You'd that's precise in a way that suggests I've like yeah, thought a lot about it. That's um, actually like I think more or less exactly where Luis Arise is according to Fancraft's yeah. work. So so maybe this is uh, already happening. Maybe yeah. this is what he's doing. <laughs> well, and I guess you know part of it would probably depend on like how big a leap is that from prior 
seasons I've put up, right? Because if you've been really bad, you know, if you've been like hanging on to a roster spot with like, you know, your fingernails, and then all of a sudden you're like incredible, people are gonna be like, what's going on with that? You know, and they're gonna they're gonna poke around and see what's what. So maybe if you are given this power, like in an off season, you're on the beach. Congratulations! You're uh, you come upon um, a magic object that gives you this power. You have to you have to pace it, you know. So you have to go from being like um, a roster fringe guy to like a a nice complimentary piece, and then the next year you you go to being like a, a fringe all star, and then after that you're like the 34th best player in baseball. And then people can attribute your ascent to like a a progression over the course of your career. Now, if you find this when you're like 36, then I think you just burn bright and hope for the best. Um, But like if you're a young, like a really young guy in in the majors, I think you can kind of, you know, chunk it out in a way that would allow you to reach a high level of performance that you then sustain over time. And people would just be like, you know, sometimes there are late bloomers, man. And you'd be thought of as a late bloomer who really made good. And it would be so exciting. And we would talk about you like that. And we wouldn't at all think you were a witch. Yeah, maybe doing what Arise is doing where he's like flirting with 400, but but probably won't actually get there. Then he could avoid arousing too much suspicion because uh, it's just so against the odds to bat 400. So if you flirt with it for half a season and then you end up hitting 370 or something, it's like, wow, what a season that was. But but no one's questioning it, really, except for effectively wild listeners writing in with conspiracy theories and hypotheticals. But <laughs> although, although, I guess the counter argument to that is that like if, if what you're doing is chasing a, a th- a heretofore quite difficult to reach benchmark. Maybe it is better to like do it in one go because we understand those seasons to be whatever the the high baseline true talent level of the player. We understand those seasons to be aided by the vagaries of luck and you just hitting like your 99th percentile projection. And so maybe it's better to just do one and done and then the next season, you know, be good, but not that good. And you'll be like, man, I don't know. It all just came together for me weird in that year. And then you move on. And I I think that maybe you would escape notice that way, even if it was like really out of character. I mean, Arise has been a good hitter his whole career. So, you know, if you were going to take, you know, if we had taken odds at the beginning of the season, which we wouldn't do because we don't care about that. But if we were to do it, we would be like, ah, like of all the guys, he'd probably be on your list, right? He'd be one of the dudes you'd name as a potential. I don't know why he'd make a weird noise about it, but. <laughs> no, he would have been. Yeah, I'm sure he was the projected highest batting average guy entering the season. Sure. So, yeah. Yeah. So, I don't know. Maybe I'm, if you're if you're going for a record if you're going for a, you know, really hard to reach benchmark, maybe you do want to just burn bright and be like, oh, I don't mm-hmm. know, man, it really. Yeah, it's just one of those magical seasons, right? Yeah. Except in this case, it was actually magical. Actually but. <laughs> magical. I wonder mm-hmm. what, we've asked this question before. I imagine when we've gotten these kinds of questions, like what would it take for me to be like, there's supernatural force involved here. Like there's no way. I don't, I, I don't know what it would take, but it would, it would take a lot because at no point this season has have I thought, is Arise a warlock? Like, does he mm-hmm. have a 
magic right. little yeah. person, like living in his hat, you know, like mm-hmm. Ratatouille, but for baseball and with magic. <laughs> yeah. No, Shohei Otani just had maybe the most valuable month ever by a baseball right. player. And we're not questioning if he's human and real. Now, you often do hear people say he's uh, otherworldly. He's from another planet. Uh, he's not human. He's a unicorn, et cetera, et cetera. Right. But no one actually thinks that he is not a human man, right? So so even Shohei Otani does not trip our, our alarms and say we're this skeptical is, is on the yeah. level. Yeah. We're skeptical. We might still we need- get questions about him actually being secret twins, but but right. that's not a mainstream belief. No. Those are fringe theories. Right. And, <laughs> Discredited. Right. And you know, we enjoy them. We don't ascribe mm-hmm. to them. We don't subscribe yeah. to them. We don't ascribe Truth to them. There you go. <laughs> right. Um, yeah. But we, I, I found it. But um, but we do enjoy the question. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. Because it's yep. fun to just think, asking questions. Yeah, it's that's fun. what our listeners are doing. <laughs> you know, we already had the moon riff, and now this people are going to be like, "What's going on with us?" Don't worry, we're fine. It's it's okay. It's, there's no turn being taken here. No, just got a MLB press release about Ken Griffey Jr. and Felix Hernandez and Edgar joining Julio as 2023 All Star ambassadors. So did you get fun. it twice like I did? <laughs> No, actually, only once. But but that's uh, that's nice. I wouldn't yeah. mind getting that twice. It's uh, sweet. I haven't heard whether whether Bad Bunny will be back, reprising his performance in the Celebrity All Star Softball Game, which I believe he was part of last year. But big baseball fan, Bad Bunny. Yeah. yeah. Um. Yes. And like, boy, Dodger Stadium was a light in in excitement for his performance in the um, Celebrity All-Star Game. It was pretty cool. But yep. um, I don't know if he will be there. I haven't yet seen Macklemore's name on the Celebrity mm. All-Star uh, roster, and I feel like there's no way that we're actually going to successfully get out of that. Um, but I mm-hmm. like that they're letting me pretend because I was like, he's going to be a captain and it's going to be a bunch of him and all. You know, mm-hmm. other sports cities like embracing his musical catalog. I was like, you had a pass and yet you made this choice. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, ben Gibbard has uh, not been announced as a participant. What I don't the believe. heck? You know? Yeah, come on, Ben. Let's go. Let's get go. In there. I guess he's he's touring, which oh. might be an issue, but well, but still. Then All right, keep touring. That's better. Yeah, couple more here. Here's a question from, gosh, okay, this one. This is weird, even for us, probably. But this is a question from Ryan, Patreon supporter. The Yankees and Cardinals were playing a day-night doubleheader today. This was July first because of two rain delays during the first game. The first game was still going by the original start time of the second game. This makes me wonder, what if both ends of a doubleheader were being played simultaneously, even just for a few innings? I can't stop thinking about this hypothetical scenario. I guess for this to work, top and bottom innings must coincide between the two games. That is, the same team must be hitting simultaneously in both games. Maybe we need two sets of batter boxes, batter's boxes and mounds as well. What are other obstacles? I can't stop thinking about two games sharing the same field at the same time. (laughs) <laughs> the the closest I can think, like a real-life comp, sometimes you have fields that are kind of facing each other, like back-to-back sort of. So so their outfields 
blend into each other like they were conjoined twins, right? Like one outfield is basically an extension of the other outfield and you just have outfielders there kind of back to back and and sometimes a, a ball might get away from one game and go into the other game, right? So that that happens sometimes in like community parks and fields, but that's not quite the same. That is not quite as disruptive as this scenario where we're playing two games at once somehow on the same field. So, yes, I guess he would need two of some things, at least. I mean, you could set things up. Uh, you could have, like, one counterclockwise game and one clockwise game on the base pass. Or, gosh, you could, you'd have to have probably two mounds or at least two pitching rubbers. Uh, there's just not, not enough real estate. And it feels like you couldn't have, like— would you need to require that it always be like a lefty and a righty if you're using one mound? <laughs> right. Like so you they could at least be like on opposite sides of the rubber or something. Yeah. Or, or hmm. yeah. Or you you need two umpires to call balls and strikes behind home plate or home plates. Uh, depends. Right. If, yeah. If you'd need. Right. I, I guess you could either have two batters boxes or. Yes, you would have to have like a, a righty lineup and a lefty lineup. It could be like a split squad game in spring training, except those are in two different places. <laughs> this is in one place. So you'd have enough manpower to do it. Like you could split your team into two and, and each part of your team, each 13-man roster could play its own game. So that would not be the limitation it would be the real estate, really. It'd be crowded. You'd have it be a safety issue, and it'd be a scorekeeping issue. Yeah, just um, think how many how many guys would accidentally, even if you were really careful, probably get hit with the ball. Yes, and could you stagger it with the pitch clock somehow so oh that you'd always get like one team is like delivering while the other is just delivered or something, but it would get out of whack and out of sync eventually. So I don't know that that would help that much. <laughs> it, maybe you would need to, if you had it occupied the same field, but like built it in such a way that you had like two diamonds facing each other instead of one diamond, like just a two two diamonds and their tips are kind of balanced. And then there's like no real outfields. Gosh, this is this is a problem. <laughs> this is a big problem. It would be so confusing. It would be hard to follow. Even even putting, you know, the different parts of your squad in like home and away jerseys to distinguish when from each other when they're in the field. But like, then you'd get confused on the other side. I why would anyone like? <laughs> yeah, why 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 would we do this? Why are would we, we do it? Is there, is there a shortage? Of baseball fields, like, can we not work out a way? Even if you're constrained time-wise, could we not have them play on different fields? I mean, if it's just, uh, like, yeah, I could imagine the Savannah Bananas doing this uh, for fun sure. or something, right? And, and They probably have. That might, yeah, <laughs> right. They, they That might be amusing to watch once. I, I don't imagine a major league team doing it. But, but yeah, for fun, you you could do it. It would just be – you'd probably have people running into each other or running into the baseballs, and it'd be tough to keep track. Uh, what if you have, like, 
to, uh, you know, rundowns, uh, pickles going on. And at the same time, people would catch the ball that was in play in the other game and you'd have to decide, I guess, the ball's dead at that point. You'd have to have like special ground rules probably for what happens if you cross the streams and one game just uh, interferes with the other game. I would watch one one time trying to see how this would work. It wouldn't, I think, is the answer very well, but <laughs> it would be a, spe- a spectacle for sure. What if and like what if you had two balls hit to the outfield and then the outfielders are, are trying to track them down and then they they yell, "I got it, I got it," and then the one peels off the ball that he's supposed to be getting because he thinks that the I got it, I got it is in reference to his ball, but it's actually in reference to the other ball. Or they don't yell, "I got it, I got it," and then they collide. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah. <laughs> what about that? Yeah, that'd be that'd be a problem. That'd be bad. Okay, well, last one maybe. This is an Otani question, although we just got a, an Otani email from Patreon supporter Josh, who said, "Thought the two of you, mostly Ben, should know that after Xander Bogarts and Jake Cronenworth hit back-to-back home runs off of Shohei Otani yesterday, I think the first back-to-back homers he'd allowed in MLB or NPB for that matter." The MLB app gifted us Padres fans with an all-timer of a notification, B2B, back-to-back, jacks off Otani. (laughs) Good day to whoever B2B is. Thank you for that notification of a notification, Josh. And here is the Otani question from Mason. I was recently fortunate to attend a show he Otani started at Angel Stadium. Not only did he hit two home runs while striking out 10 and picking out a W and picking up a W, as you mentioned on a recent episode, it was Japanese Heritage Night and the giveaway was an Otani jigsaw puzzle. With 100 pieces measuring a total of 18 by 18 inches, assuming the poster insert is identical in dimension, the puzzle features a profile view of Otani batting with a very serious and deliberate expression, his name in bold letters atop Angel Stadium at dusk, and three fun facts as follows. The only player in MLB history with 10-plus pitching wins and 30-plus homers in the same season. The only player in the World Series area to complete 10-plus wins and 10 stolen bases in the same season. And only American League starting pitcher to throw 40-plus pitches at 100 miles per hour plus in the 2022 season. These stats reveal that Otani is historically unusual, a power pitcher with a power bat who possesses some speed, but it struck me that there's a lot of caveats here and surely there were more striking fun facts available. The first stat is probably the most impressive, though it seems like a miss on the whole to omit a direct comparison to Babe Ruth, who even non-fans know as a greatest of all time. Otherwise, we're looking at World Series era instead of something completely unprecedented, as well as some underwhelming totals, 10 wins and 10 stolen bases. Plus, one of those stats is a repeat of the first one. Then there's a stat limited to a single season and only applied to starting pitchers. Oh, and it completely fails to refer to Otani's two-way status, his most remarkable feature. After watching the game, which, as you pointed out, might have been among the single greatest war accumulations in history in a game, it was hard not to feel underwhelmed and even puzzled by the printed stats. Were these pulled from a listicle? How did the designer and marketing team decide on these three fun facts for inclusion? The puzzle includes additional fun facts on the container, some of which are at least as impressive, if not more so, than the ones chosen for inclusion. Only player in MLB history to qualify for the league leaders as both a hitter and pitcher in one season. I like that one. Two-time All-Star as 
both a hitter and pitcher. Otani has done so many remarkable and truly one-of-a-kind things. I'm wondering what fun fact each of you would insist be included on the puzzle. For me, the list is missing big numbers, like Otani hitting 46 homers in 2021 while allowing only 46 earned runs, or striking out 219 batters in 2022 while reaching base 237 times, or his combined totals for batters faced and plate appearances, which uh, may be my favorite, and I mentioned that recently. I do kind of like the genre that's like, he did this many things as a hitter, and hitters against him did only that many things. But I kind of think that Otani is just post-fun fact at this point. Like, I never really get wowed by a stat about him anymore, because it's just... Like, look at him. I mean, just look what he's doing. Like, I don't even need a stat. I don't need a, to dig up some sort of tortured statistical thing or, or even a non-tortured statistical thing. Just, like, look at the basic back-of-the-baseball card stats even with him. You just basically have to say he's a two-way player, he hits and he pitches, and he's among the best in baseball at each of those things. Like, that's <laughs> that's it. That, like, subsumes... All the fun facts, all the fun facts are basically saying that, right? It's just like all the comps to Babe Ruth at this point are pretty passe. Like he's surpassed Babe Ruth's two-way credentials. Like he's done it longer and at a higher level than Babe Ruth did the two things simultaneously. So, you know, you could dig up some Bullet Rogan fun facts. It's just like... It's extraneous. It's unnecessary at this point to come up with some sort of fun fact for Otani. He's just, he's a walking fun fact. He's a human fun fact. Like, (laughs) he has surpassed the need to be— He's evolved past fun facts. right. We no longer need to to summarize him in fun fact form. Like, it just, it speaks for itself at this point, I think. Yeah, I think that that's right. I think that they, that he is, I mean, on the one hand, I will admit that my tolerance— for Otani fun facts is much higher. Like I am I am willing to accept a worse fun fact when it involves Otani than probably anyone else. But also, but also, I don't it's like like you gotta he's not a, a snippets kind of guy, you know, he's not a little morsels dude. You gotta little morsels dude sounds bad. I regret it. <laughs> I have immediate regret. I'm <laughs> Mm-mm. Don't know what it means, but I feel like it's bad, you know? Um, uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm coming back from that. Um, uh, you want to uh, wrap your arms around? Oh, no. You just, uh, the totality of, uh, anyway, he's just very impressive. He's a really good mm-hmm. player. Yep. Yeah. I, I cite his war a lot, but even war doesn't quite capture it because he's not like breaking the scale War-wise, he has a very high one, and he has been on pace or close to on pace for like one of the highest ones we've seen in a very long time. So, but even so, it's not unprecedented the way that just what he's doing is. So, yeah, I I just I don't need I don't need any particular individual facts to sort of sum up Otani anymore. Like it's just uh, we've all seen it, (laughs) we're watching it, we we know what's happening here. All right. And then the last one to sort of segue into our future blast here, we got a question from Kellen who said, possibly a good fit for the future blast. When do you think we will first see a hitter, major leaguer, wear a full cage softball style helmet to the plate? And we've talked in the past about uh, when big leaguers or should big leaguers wear softball style masks and, you know, some infielders wear them and, and pitchers, obviously. 
And I think what we keep coming back to is that basically like someone has to get hurt horribly for for it to happen. I mean, it is often the case that when someone suffers one of these uh, really scary injuries, then they come back and they say, I'm going to have another flap on my helmet now or something, right? And they just object to any deviation from their routine, any giant helmet, any heavier helmet or cap or insert, you know, some of them have that, but but the really protective measures, people are reluctant to do it. They worry it will look weird or it will unbalance them or it'll be uncomfortable. It'll get them off their game in some way. But but if someone got beamed or hit by a comebacker in like a really life-threatening way, that has happened, That's obviously. Happened. Yeah. But you took someone who was like at death's door maybe and, and they – Managed to make it back somehow, and then they just say, I'm not taking any chances anymore. Just give me the cage. Give me the full helmet protection, whatever it looks like, however it feels. I don't want that to happen to me again. I I just don't think we're going to see someone voluntarily say, yeah, I'm going to take the proactive step of wearing this protective gear so that that won't happen to me in the first place. Uh, humans don't work like that most of the time. We have to touch the stove and then say, ow, and then pull away from the stove. We have to learn that lesson at some point. So I kind of think it would take that. And, and maybe if someone were to get killed or something, some truly terrible tragedy, then you might get the league stepping in and saying we're going to mandate something like this. But but even for an individual, I, I think it would be coming back from the brink. Or, I don't know, like maybe with someone with a softball background who's played that growing up and has experienced it and, and knows it's not so bad and you can play through it, maybe then they'd be more amenable to it. So it, it takes some kind of unique combination of like learning your lesson or having that background and thus not being afraid of of wearing that. Yeah, I think that that's right. I mean, it, it is, maybe I shouldn't be surprised, but it is somewhat surprising to me that we haven't seen it happen already because to your point, like there have been oh, some very scary um, comebacker moments. I wonder if the fact that some of the worst ones I can think about happened at the minor league level has something to do with the fact that we haven't seen greater major league adoption. Although we've seen scary comebackers, we've seen scary hit by pitches. We've seen guys get bonked in a way that is quite scary where there's like blood, you know? So I'm a little surprised at the persistence of the stubbornness. I mean, not totally surprised because and I say this with mostly uh, affection and and a good deal of jest, but like I've met men, so that part shouldn't surprise me as much as it maybe does. But um, I, I also just like, maybe we need to recast it because when I look at like the softball, I think they look like cool. Like yeah. I, it doesn't read as corny or dorky to me, you know? Mm -hmm. I'm not like, oh, look at this nerd with her rolly backpack, you know? <laughs> Just to, like, pick a debate reference that's top of mind for me, a person who did that. So, I think that maybe, maybe what we need to do is, like, a stealth campaign to get the players of baseball, the pro players, to be like, I look kind of badass, you know? Yeah, I sure. look mm -hmm. intimidating. Like, think about the way that it got to the point that the NFL actually ended up regulating this, but like think about how intimidating defensive players or running backs look when they've got like the, the, you know, the, the dark visor and the scary 
whatever that thing is called in front of your face on a mm-hmm. football helmet, you know, that thing that anyway, yep, that like, thing. I don't think it would take much for us to, to be able to successfully recast that as like metal, you know, but it would, it would require the league not having anything to do with it. I think, because if it's being done in the name of player safety, I think there will be persistent resistance, even unfortunately when something even more serious than what we've already seen happens. But if it's about it being hardcore, then, mm-hmm. and you know how I am a convincing like uh, messenger for hardcore. <laughs> sure. <Yeah. laughs> when people think Meg, they they're think like hardcore. hardcore and you know? They've yep. heard how <laughs> I say uh, blue ski and they're like, yeah, that, <laughs> hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, we will end with the future blast. All right, the Future Blast comes to us from 2029, and as always, from Rick Wilbur, an award-winning writer, editor, and college professor who has been described as the Dean of Science Fiction Baseball. 2029, pitching in the Influencer. Nats pitcher Paul Skeens was already having the best year of his career in 2029, and then came perfection. A top draft pick by the Nationals in 2023, Skeens rose up through the system to join the big club late in 2027, and then stuck on the roster in 2028, where he enjoyed modest success at 12 and 10, with an ERA of 4.01 and some occasional control problems to go along with that 100-mile-per-hour fastball. Then in 2029, he had a season we'll all remember, winning 25 games, improving his strikeout-to-walk ratio to a stunning 7-1, and throwing an excellent 73% strike average over the season. He topped that off with a perfect game on September 12th, where he struck out the side in the first four innings and calmly worked his way through the Cubs lineup for the next four, teasing them into ground balls or routine flies before he struck out the side in the ninth to punctuate the day. It was the first perfect game since Spencer Strider's Perfecto in 2025. We didn't cover that in that future blast. Skeen's memorable season led the Nats to the World Series, where Skeen's won both his starts in impressive fashion, even as the Nats lost the series to the Angels, who's prospered at last, despite still missing the long-departed Shohei Otani, who'd gone on to glory with the Dodgers, though he lost an ironic heartbreaker in the postseason to the A's. To no one's surprise, Skeen signed a seven-figure deal to be fitted with Apple's Be There system for the 2030 season. Remember, we introduced that last time. This is uh, your your haptic feedback, your VR. You feel like you're on the field. This was tested in the Atlantic League in 2029. Skeen's began wearing the system for his off-season workouts, testing its interest among his social media followers. By the time spring training came along, Skeen's had more than 115,000 fans who'd bought home receiving units and his endorsement deals ballooned. All those followers wanted to immerse themselves on the mound in a spring training game, facing some of the best hitters in baseball and, more often than not, sending them back to the dugout. A towering homer by the Braves' Ronald Acuna Jr., though, lit up the Be There chat rooms with calls for Acuna Jr. and other great hitters to be rigged up with Be There units, too. By midseason, that had happened to the profit of the players, the stay-at-home fans, and the ball clubs. The age of Be There had arrived. All right, we're only seven years away from being there on the field or feeling like we're on the field. I think the more amazing thing is that we're only seven years away from the A's making it back to the postseason. (laughs) Bazinga! (laughs) I know. I continue to think that this be there thing is going to prompt so many hypothetical emails that that we will answer at some point. Just a a whole lot of uh, privacy concerns uh, come up here whole lot of uh, other issues about this system that are kind of conjured in my mind. But as I always say, with these uh, technological innovations, brave new baseball world.
All right. By the way, we started out this episode talking about injured teams. Well, the Dodgers are at the top on the baseball prospectus injury list ledger in terms of days missed and games missed to injury, but they are not at the top in terms of wins above replacement player missed. That would be the Yankees, who are far and away first at about eight wins above replacement player lost to injury. That would be Judge and Carlos Rodon, of course, who's missed the entire season, but is coming back Friday. That should help. I'll link to that ledger if you want to peruse the casualty list. Should have been Included Zach Greinke in my rundown of old guys getting hurt earlier. He went on the IL with shoulder tendonitis. Doesn't sound super serious, but definitely puts a crimp in my hope that he would get to go to the All-Star game in that extra legend spot. Speaking of the All-Star festivities, Julio Rodriguez also will be in the Home Run Derby. They announced the field after we recorded. It's Luis Robert Jr. versus Pete Alonso, Adley Rutschman versus Julio, Adelis Garcia versus Mookie Betts, and Randy Rosarena versus Vlad Guerrero Jr. Also, last time we talked about players who had siblings with the same name, Wilmer Flores, Carlos Perez, Wander Franco. Listeners pointed out others we missed, such as Rugnet Odor, who has a brother also named Rugned, and an uncle named Ruglas. I believe the name Rugned is a combination of his grandfather's name, Douglas, and his grandmother's name, Nidia, but they had a family custom of giving boys names that begin with the letter R, and so Rugnet Odor's father became the first Rugned. By changing the D in Douglas to an R, you get the combination of Douglas and Nidia, Rugned. All right. There's also Victor Victor Mesa and Victor Mesa Jr. And then some similar ones that some of our Patreon supporters suggested. Edgardo and Edgar Alfonso, Endy and Ender Chavez, Gregor Blanco and Gregory Blanco and Gregsmen Blanco. As long as there's some distinction, some difference in the name though, even if it's extremely similar. That's a whole different ball of wax from identical names. But even identical names, maybe not so identical in practice. Got a good email about this from listener Othon, who said, and you had a conversation about the Wilmers, Wanders, and Carloses. As someone from Latin America, specifically Mexico, I know that it is quite common for some families to have several siblings with the same first names, but not the same middle names. For example, many siblings might be named Jose, Maria, Carlos, Antonio, Juan, etc. My dad's brothers are all Jose's, and all his sisters are Maria's. However, not one of them goes by Jose or Maria, except for my dad, who has called this at work because it is his first name, but his real name is Othon, just like me. Incidentally, my birth name is Jose Othon, but I also go by Othon. This is why we, Mexicans and other Latin Americans, are stereotypically said to have so many Jose's and Maria's. Many families use and repeat the name for religious reasons, mainly Catholicism, and because it is used as a prefix to the name the child is intended to go by. For example, my uncles are Trinidad and Martin, and my aunts are Concepcion, Consuelo, Carmen, and Luz, all Maria's. Their parents, my grandparents, were also Jose and Maria, but went by their middle names. It may be that this practice is more common in certain regions of the country or countries. I would want to know if the Wilmers, Wanders, and Carlos all also have middle names, and if in their families they go by their middle names, one goes by their first name, such as the firstborn, and the other by the middle names, or all use nicknames since birth. It is possible that, for example, one went by Carlos and the other went by their middle name, but once in the USA, they are both called by Carlos because it is their first name. Meanwhile, their family members likely know who is who and which exact name each of them uses. Yes, I'm sure they do, because it would be quite confusing otherwise. And yes, the elder Carlos Perez is Carlos Eduardo Perez. The younger Carlos Perez is Carlos Jesus Perez. And as for the Wanders, they're Wander Samuel, Wander Javier, and Wander Alexander. And then the Wilmers are Wilmer Alejandro Flores and Wilmer de Jesus Flores. Thank you for the email, Othon. Finally, there was a little bit of controversy in a Brewers-Cubs game this week. David Ross, Cubs manager, was upset about the umpiring, but also about the Brewers closing the roof at American Family Field to get rid of the shadows late, he said. They closed the retractable roof late in the game. He has a legitimate gripe there, possibly. The home team can decide whether it wants to 
start the game with the roof opener closed. And if there's inclement weather, then it can close the roof mid-game, but there didn't seem to be in Milwaukee. And so the conspiracy, if your team's trailing, trying to make a comeback, then you get those mid-game, late-game shadows that are creeping across the field. Maybe it makes it harder to come back. There was a baseball perspective study by Gerald Schiffman that did indeed show, he was on the podcast to talk about this, that there is some evidence that it is harder to hit when those shadows are between the mound and home plate. There was a time when the Cardinals' Tony La Russa complained that the Brewers cheated with their lights at home, that the LED ribbon board that wrapped around the ballpark above the loge level shined brighter while the Brewers batted, and it was darker when the Cardinals batted, so it was harder for them to see. That just made me remember what we talked about last week, the conspiracy about the twins tinkering with the Metrodome air conditioning to blow balls in or out as we were answering an email about giant fans on the field. That was in 2003 that the former stadium operations person copped to doing that. What I neglected to mention that time was that in 2004, there was suspicions that it was still going on. It wasn't just a late 80s, early 90s thing. Alan Trammell, who was managing the Tigers at the time, said, we almost made a comeback and then had the issue of whether or not those blowers were on. It seemed like those air conditioners were blowing straight in our face in the top of the ninth. There was definitely a difference in the air conditioner in the ninth inning. There was no question that there was some air blowing in the ninth inning. Twins vice president of operations said it borders on the ridiculous and the absurd. He said the vents behind home plate don't blow out. They take cold air off the field and circulate it through a series of smaller vents located around the upper and lower decks. Plus, in the ninth inning, when the Metrodome staff opened the doors to let fans out, more air pressure had to be pumped into the building to keep the roof inflated. And according to that Twins executive, the commissioner's office and a team of physicists from the University of Minnesota have studied the Metrodome's air distribution system and found its impact on the game negligible. I'm just amused by this idea of using the ballpark conditions to influence the game one way or another. I'm sure there has been something to it at times, but I would also guess that the effect is probably overblown. Sometimes it's imaginary. Sometimes it's looking at a team that happened to have a better home record and wondering why is there something nefarious going on. Anyway, glad to see that the tradition is still seemingly alive and well. Effectively Wild is also alive and well, and that's because of our Patreon supporters. You can become one of them by going to patreon.com slash effectively wild and signing up to pledge some monthly or yearly amount to help keep the podcast going, help us stay ad-free, and get yourself access to some perks. The following five listeners have already done so. Beth Goldberg, Hillary Kirby, Eleanor, Richard Ford, and Dan Bauman. Thanks to all of you. Patreon perks include access to the Effectively Wild Discord group for patrons only, plus monthly bonus episodes and playoff live streams and discounts on ad-free fancrafts, memberships and merch and expedited email answers and so much more. Patreon.com slash Effectively Wild. If you are a Patreon supporter, you can message us through the Patreon site. Anyone can contact us via email at podcast at fancrafts.com. You can also rate, review, and subscribe to Effectively Wild on iTunes and Spotify and other podcast platforms. You can join our Facebook group at facebook.com slash group slash Effectively Wild. You can follow Effectively Wild on Twitter at EWPod, and you can find the Effectively Wild subreddit at r slash Effectively Wild. Thanks to Shane McKeon for his editing and production assistance. We will have one more episode for you before the end of the week. Talk to you soon. When I'm riding the bus or going for a walk One shot on my head then listen to people talk I want to hear about baseball with new ones and puppy and stats. Yeah, yeah. Don't want to hear about pitcher wins or about gambling odds. Only want to hear about my cat at the calls and the texture of the hair on the arm growing out of one's head. Gross, gross. Give me, give me, give me effectively wild. Give me, give me, give me effectively wild. Give me, give me, give me effectively wild.